and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Jackie Insinger is a best-selling author, keynote speaker, and a sought-after leadership and team dynamics consultant. Jackie combines the science of positive psychology, which we talk a lot about in today's conversation, with revolutionary tools and programs to help leaders increase authentic connection performance, and fulfillment. Jackie works with teams to build a culture of trust while guiding them to become more aligned, communicate more effectively, collaborate with ease, and support each other more efficiently. The results of these trainings lead to measurable increases in productivity, performance, and engagement within an overall enhanced culture. And in turn, 
she hopes that they receive a positive ROI for the company's bottom line. So Jackie cares about the individual, but she also cares about teams and cultures. And at the end of the day, how can we improve performance of our organizations? She has a psychology degree from Duke University and a master's from Harvard. And she has worked with individuals and teams that have positively impacted thousands of people and businesses throughout the world. She's been featured in Forbes, Inc. Magazine, Entrepreneur, Fast Company, California Business Journal, CEO, World's Magazine, HR.com, and many, many other outlets. And her book, Spark Brilliance, which we talk a lot about in today's conversation, has hit bestseller in five different business categories. I think you're going to find this conversation to be refreshing. Jackie is authentic. She shares some of her own personal story, some of her own personal challenges, and how that adversity has helped shape how she sees the world. It's interesting because I think you're going to find Jackie to be upbeat and positive, but she also combines that with depth and an authenticity that makes her extremely relatable. So here is Jackie Insinger. Jackie, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks to Ryan LaVarnway for connecting us. Where I thought we'd start is around this idea of emotional contagion, which is really in the heart of your book. Uh, and it's also something that I know you love to talk about. So first set the table, what is emotional contagion and why does it matter? Um, I love you started there. So emotional contagion is kind of like it sounds, right? The spontaneous spread of emotions from person to person or through a group, which could be good or bad depending on what we're spreading. So there's so much great research behind it. And as you know, I'm a weird data nerd. Um, I love data. So 33 milliseconds is all it takes for our brain to read and identify someone's emotions and take them on. And there's all these studies, like you put three complete strangers in a room, whoever has the most dominant emotion will spread to the other two, good or bad. So what happens is, is as leaders, not only do we spread our emotion so instantly, but we spread our outlook. And as a leader, you can inspire an outlook on the layer below you and the layer below them with just how you chose to show up in a, in a minute, in a meeting, in a moment, and how we decide to show up in our lives in any relationship will spread to the people around us. And the power of that the empowerment of knowing how you get to choose and you get to choose what you spread and what spreads from there to me is the most impactful, empowering, powerful thing we can know about ourselves and how we interact with others. I remember when I was on college campuses, I would smile, especially at pretty girls. I'd smile <laughs> at them, hope I get a smile back or wave as I go through the quad or a fist bump um, to a friend, or even I was in a fraternity and you give a head nod to the person with the letters that you have on. Or um, There's all these elements of connecting with people. I even like when I'm in a garage, sometimes I'll just wave to people or in the neighborhood. I'm the, I'm the guy that's always waving to anyone. And my kids are like, do you know that person? No, but I love uh, trying to make people's day. Uh, I'm curious though, in this world of remote work, and you hit on this in the book, uh, to a certain extent, you talk about the perils of remote work mm -hmm. and perhaps what we're missing when it comes to emotional contagion. There's arguments to be had for remote work, for in-person. We're still figuring all that out. Uh, what advice are you giving to the organizations you work with when it comes to how they can still spread uh, positive emotion to their company while perhaps having a hybrid workforce or a remote workforce? So that's such a good question. And it becomes so much more critical 
about how you show up in a meeting. It's, very, it's like almost like a long distance relationship. If you've ever had a long distance relationship, that one phone call determines kind of the status of your relationship that whole day, instead of being in person and having so many moments that you know you kind of pull the average or you pull the strongest. When you're in a remote work environment, how the leader shows up in a meeting will determine that emotional state and that outlook that people take on the rest of the day until that next meeting. So for leaders, I tell you, it is so it is so important that you pause before you click on your camera, before you enter that meeting and decide, what do I want to spread to my team today? And making that decision. And you know, transparency and authenticity is so important that being able to say even like, Hey guys, you know what? I'm having a little bit of a rough morning. I'm going to take five minutes and just like quickly take a walk or clear my head so I can come on in the right mindset for this meeting. I think that in itself, showing that transparency builds that psychological safety and it allows the leader to show up for the team in the way that they need. And you know, a positive outlook. There's so much, there's so much research around it, like big studies by Harvard business review, Show when you have a positive outlook, productivity goes up 31%, sales 37%, profits 50%, and the negative impact of stress goes down 23%. And as the leader, you get to, to bring that. You get to create those results by showing up for your team in the right way. And so I think that's where that authenticity and positivity intersect in a really important light, especially in remote work. I'm sure we'll get to the science of positive psychology and the distinction you make around what positive psychology is and what positivity is. Uh, and I think positive psychology is horribly branded, um, which I'm sure you agree to a certain extent. Uh, so we'll, we'll get into that, but before we go there, let's just talk about emotions. So I just gave a talk to a company and one of the tools we use is, uh, called the States of mind chart. It was created by a guy named Alexander Clay. He's actually been on the podcast and he puts a line down the middle and says, Hey, there are emotions that are above the line and emotions that are below the line. And one of the things that I've come to realize is that the emotions below the line, sadness, uh, feeling victimized, depressed, anger, could be jealousy, aren't necessarily bad. And I just recently had an experience where I felt sadness and anger. And I actually said, this is something I need to bring with me. This is something I need to leverage and utilize because I have lived a pretty privileged life. And I feel as though the adversity I've gone through is not that massive. And sadness and anger move me. Uh, they move me to take action and stand up for justice and stand up for what's right. And so that experience was like, whoa, I'm crying a lot. I'm having sadness. My body's probably telling me something that this part of me needs probably to be watered more. And so as you think about emotions and the negative emotions, so to speak, what are your thoughts on when to lean into the negative emotions and when to maybe sit with them and maybe uh, just be with them and when to maybe bottle them and, and how you think about our relationship with negative emotions, especially for, for leaders. I love this question so much. I feel like this is such a relevant question for me as a human, because I spent so much of my life avoiding negative emotions. Um, that was so much of who I was is I only live in these positive states and I became a master of avoidance, but they all build and live in you somewhere, right? You can avoid something. It doesn't mean that it's not there. 
you're actively avoiding. So I, what I've been working on, you know, my entire adult life really is how do you pay attention to all emotions and emotions are um, there for a reason. And they're to indicate something for you. They're, they're telling you something, whether it's, I need a boundary. This isn't fair. This isn't right. Or, um, this, this, this relationship doesn't feel good to me, or I need to do something differently. Um, so they're, they're all important and they're there for a reason telling you something. So I think part of it is no emotion is a bad emotion. They're, they're all on the spectrum of things that we need to feel. Some are much more enjoyable than others. And yes, we want to move into those, but we have to honor the negative ones first. And that's part of a, a lot of what I work on. And what I work on a lot with clients is what is that? Let's look at it. Let's really look at the reality. Let's look at the thing. Let's honor it so that we can decide what do we want to do with this? Is there something we need to do? Can we let it go? Is there a change that we need to make? Is there a conversation we need to have? But really let's look at these negative emotions, say, I'm going to honor this. It's serving a purpose and then decide what do I want to do with this? That's how I approach them now. No, I think it makes complete sense. I want to tap into avoidance leaders, I work with a lot of leaders who love avoiding conflict and don't want to confront. And maybe they're good from a political standpoint because they don't rock the boat and they don't bring things up to the forefront. But in the long run, avoidance as a strategy is limiting. Uh, What have you done to um, make sure you're not avoiding uh, the avoidance? How do you make sure that you are not over-indexing on avoidance and tapping into when it's necessary confrontation or conflict or challenges? Um, Me personally or my clients or helping my clients? Let's go to you personally, because you mentioned yourself as someone who tended to avoid negative emotions. So I'm curious what's worked for you. And then if you want to bring in clients, you're welcome to as well. I think for me, it's been a real focus. It's been a real, it's been very deliberate to not avoid. So I think my focus has really been there is really paying attention to noticing, honoring. And what I've learned is the more that I do that, the less scary or overwhelming the feelings are. Cause oftentimes I don't really even need to do anything about them except notice them. And I think before what I felt was, oh my gosh, what does this mean? This feels big. This feels overwhelming. I don't want to feel sad. I don't want, what is, you know, what is this going to say about something? And, and that feeling, it just grew and it became almost like bigger than my body. The idea of the emotion being something, maybe I can't handle something. Um, and that in itself was scary, but if you, if you look at the thing before it becomes a problem, sometimes I find you don't really even have to do anything about it. It doesn't have to become a conflict. Sometimes it's just noticing and being like, oh, I'm going to pay attention to that. Let me see if that happens again. Or maybe I'm going to try something a little differently this time, or I'm going to have a preemptive conversation. And so oftentimes what happens, what I find is when you're looking at the thing before it becomes a problem, you look at the motion before it becomes a big deal. Sometimes you can not have the thing become a problem because you're looking at it early. And that's that's one of those really proactive approaches that I've found tends to really work for people like me who tend to, whether it's be more of a people pleaser or just don't like the conflict side of things, or maybe just don't like the negativity. All three of those things, you know, can can make people avoid these these feelings that we don't want to feel. So that's one of the tactics that's really helped helped me a lot. 
Yeah, I love the phrase, you don't have to wait till it rains to build a roof and you don't have to be sick to get better. And and you talk about often the op- the opposite of, you know, being sick is not wellness. You do it, you're gonna articulate it better than I can. Um, but I want to just go a little deeper on the avoidance piece. Why do you think so many people are conflict averse? Where do you think that comes from? And maybe this is getting deep psychological psychotherapy uh, on you or with regard to your clients, but it's something I've wondered about because I haven't, I haven't figured out a pattern as far as what is going on with my clients as, as to why they struggle with conflict. Um, But what's your perspective on why people may lean into avoidance too much? You know, I, I see extremes, right? I see people on both ends, people who really thrive in conflict, the ones who are like healthy debate. That's what makes life go around, right? Like we can argue, we can get passionate, we can raise our voices, get heated and let's go for a beer. All is well in the world, right? Like that's what makes, that's what makes life rich. And then there are leaders I see on the other side who um, sometimes there's a profile of a specific type of person that you see of that high achiever, more people pleaser, very high expectations of themselves, which fits into a model of somebody who doesn't rock the boat, someone who, you know, has it together all the time, right? It's like, I've got this, I'm good. We've got this. I I can say things articulately. I can always be polite. I can, you know, I can be respectful and still achieve. And this like very high um, standards of excellence for themselves in that high achiever, people pleaser, kind of that was their role in life. Um, And not somebody who does things that might upset other people or says something that they didn't stand in integrity for that they have to apologize later. So there's a certain profile of a type of person that fit into a mold um, in a, in sometimes I see in it from since childhood. And those are the people that's like, Ooh, ooh, I don't want to engage in that. Um, That might bring out a side of me that I don't like or reflect on me poorly later. And I should be able to handle this, right? A lot of shoulds in those situations is, is what I, that's kind of my take. Yeah. And the latter, it sounds like you're describing you as I look at your bio, went to Duke undergrad, went to Harvard for grad school, your bio reads as that high achiever and, you know, wanting to just go toward that. But in researching you, and we talked about this before we started recording, I don't think people would have expected to hear some of what happened in your childhood and some of what you witnessed. So can you give us a glimpse into what led to you maybe avoiding conflict and some of the things you witnessed as a kid that perhaps shaped why you have decided to go down a certain path as it relates to your relationship with, with confrontation? Yeah. Yeah, of course. So grew up in Miami and I went to a middle school that was 3000 kids and it was 98% Cuban. And, um, and it was, um, there were a lot of gangs and I was already a very small minority and it was gang infested, like gang infested, meaning like we had metal detectors to get into school. You know, we had a a girl in my um, art class had a gun, the, um, the gangs in my school, if you had blonde hair, which I, my hair was naturally blonde at the time. Um, and you had a ponytail, they would come cut off your ponytail in the lunchroom. And it was just this, a very big fear state. It was, I had a constant buzz of fear. And, um, I had friends who, who got beaten up, pulled out of our history class and beaten up in the bathroom and never came back to school. And, um, so there was this very much of a, 
how do I, how do I, how am I liked by everybody? How do I keep this like likable constant without standing out? Right. Like, how do I kind of ride that? I always heard, like, I wrote, I wrote that eight and a half was kind of my thing. Um, not so good that I would call attention, but always at that line where it would blend in as, Oh, good. She's good. You know, kind of thing. And that was kind of the, the role I took on earlier in my life. And, you know, I saw, you know, a um, my, my boyfriend at the time in eighth grade got shot in front of me. And that was a really, really scary experience. And um, there was a lot of stuff that I experienced and saw at a young age around safety with that, that um, I internalized. And so that any kind of conflict had a fear, um, almost like a fear connotation to me and kind of writing that line. That's the role I took on in my family. That's the role I took on in my environment. And I just kind of stepped into this, like, you know, high expectations. I've got this. I don't need any extra attention um, kind of kind of role that I took on. So avoiding conflict as almost a coping mechanism became ingrained in me. How did that experience shape how you parent your, your boys? You know, it's been a, it's been a great journey to notice things in myself. I try to be very self-reflective around why am I doing these things um, with them? So what I've really tried is to allow all emotions are welcome here. Right. And Yes, we want to solve and work through things to get to a good place where we do feel joy, where we do feel happy and healthy and thriving. That's the goal, but that emotions are okay and where we can share them and we can express them and we can support each other through whatever that is and you're safe to feel was um, something that I really, really try to, to um, kind of um, have that just energy in our home all the time. As you reflect and replay those stories, what emotions come up for you? Mm. You know, it's interesting you ask that. It's just like, I, I feel very, uh, I go back to it a little bit. I don't know. Yeah, if you went heavy. You got heavier rather than lighter. Yeah. Um, I felt that, right. I felt it in my body going back to those experiences. And I, you know, I've been in a phase of my life where I've been very reflective lately and really kind of going back and trying to work through things to let certain things go. Um, and and it's been amazing to do that, but I think I get much more present in those feelings because I avoided them for so long that it's okay. It's not scary for me to go back to my feel them. I'm not scared in that space, but I allow it to be what it was rather than what I wanted it to be. How do you think that experience helped you? Uh, we've sort of talked about the avoidance and perhaps some uh, negative uh, outcomes that came from, we'll call it trauma or experiencing trauma or seeing things that probably kids in middle school shouldn't see or really anybody should see. Um, but how do you think it's helped shape you and, and help you get to where you're at today? No, that's a great question. This actually just came out of a, um, some work I've been doing really recently is realizing, um, how that fueled me to do some great things, right? That fear state, even though it wasn't the ideal state gave me the drive and the fuel to move my life forward in really positive directions in a very accelerated way, right? I knew like, I, I don't want to be in this environment. I don't want to be in this place. And I'm, um, these are my goals and I would really focus and I would be very diligent. And, um, and I, and I was able to achieve a lot of really 
really powerful, positive things from this fear state. And I think just knowing that I could count on myself in those situations, um, is, has been a really great thing for my own self-confidence. Yeah. Cause you talk in the book a lot about this idea of getting stretchy and the negative impact of doing, I'm going to use ice bath, ice baths as an example, because it seems like ice baths are having a moment, uh, in, in 2023, but you sort of say, Hey, this idea of being comfortable with the uncomfortable, you don't have to get in such discomfort that you're in, you know, fight or flight mode or freeze mode, as some would say, in addition to that. Uh, so you talk about this idea of stretchy, but my perspective is it's kind of an and instead of an or it's like, we can be motivated by fear and we can be motivated by hope and both are valuable. It's like, I just went and saw a, a, a cardiologist because I was having some issues. I was like, you know what, let me go make sure that my heart is um, okay. And there was fear there, right? Or, Hey, I've had too many drinks. Let's give the keys to somebody else and let them drive. Or maybe I don't want to eat that cheeseburger because there could be negative consequences. Like those are not for me, hope decisions. Those are often fear decisions mm -hmm. and they can be helpful. Uh, and then on the other side of the coin, there's like optimism and hope and uh, being led by your vision and where you want to go, which I also try to leverage and, and pull the lever on. So for you, it sounds like if I'm hearing you right, that fear has actually helped you in a number of ways get to where you're at. And perhaps as I'm looking at you, you've got books behind you. You are not just impacting the world with your work. You're also training others to make an impact. Like it's clear that you're mission driven and there's this other side on the positive psychology spectrum of like, how do we get people from, you know, strong to a spark or how do we get someone from great to brilliant? Like there's a lot of this other piece of you that is shining. And so I'm wondering like, how do you leverage both? How do you leverage the fear that helped got you to where you're at and perhaps the hope that is where you may be going? I think that's such a great distinction. And the way that I would look at it is yes, I was driven from a fear state and I'm so grateful for that because that's not often what happens in a fear state. And is that the ideal way to grow? In my mind, absolutely not. Most, it doesn't, there wasn't pleasure in it. There, the, the journey, the experience wasn't something that felt sustainable and deliberate and intentional and joyful. It was a have to, right? In my mind versus when you get stretchy, you're deliberately creating a where I am now and where I want to be. And how can I do that in a way that's sustainable where I can bump my head on my comfort zone around the way and create new normals for myself. So I actually can enjoy this process, can course correct as I go um, to get to this place where I can not just end up on the other side, but I can learn through it rather than just be like, I made it. You know, I survived it and I did it. Somehow I got here, right? It's a whole different type of growth process. And yes, we can be thrown into the deep end and figure out how to doggy paddle and get there and end up at the same side of the pool as if we're like, all right, how do I do this stroke? And how do I get there in a way that I'm not scared? Um, and I get to the other side of the pool knowing that I can swim. And I think that's the difference to me um, in getting stretchy or a fear state growth opportunity. Yeah. I love asking my clients. I have them fill out a worksheet before every one of our meetings. And I ask them 
you know, what mistakes, or I use the word regrets because Dan Pink wrote this great book on the power of regret. So I use that word. Some people reject it. It doesn't really matter. But, you know, what mistakes or adversity or, or regrets did you have and what did you learn from it? And then what successes did you have and what did you learn from it? And to your point, there's almost this misconception, at least in the world that I'm in, that you have to go through adversity to grow and you have to go through pain to grow. And while pain can expedite growth or you can go through adversity and that can absolutely help us grow. There's a lot of people that go through shit and never learn anything. Like there's a lot of people that go through adversity and pain and don't learn a damn thing. And then there's a lot of people that have success and learn a ton. And so like this idea of we can learn from both, but what's most important, there's a pattern to both, which is the uh, curiosity and the desire to learn. And sure, the pain and adversity may elicit certain emotions that are stickier and stay with us longer. But to your point, there's also a lot of research about having a standard or a baseline of security and then using that security to thrive. And so it is an interesting paradigm that for me, at least I've leveraged. And I'll just I'll quickly give you an example. I've worked with professional sports teams and they hire me to interview players at the combine. So where all the players will try out. And so I've done it for the NBA. I've done it for the NHL. I've done it for major league soccer. And there are some teams that are like, we want people who have been through hard things. And I was like, okay, but do you notice a lot of the best players, let's just use the NBA. A lot of the best players in the NBA actually come from pretty stable households. And a lot of them, come from great environments and uh, maybe their their parent played professional sports. And there's almost this misconception that you have to have come from nothing to be something. And I don't think that drive and hunger is necessarily completely aligned with being hungry, uh, like literally hungry or homeless. Like there's all kinds of things that lead to an internal drive. And actually that internal drive in the long run will probably, uh, win out over the external drive. You're not in your head. So I'm going to, I want to shift gears and, and get your perspective on what I was talking about to see if I'm making sense or logical, uh, in sort of my framework and how I'm thinking about this. I agree with you hundred percent. And I think that that drive can come from all sorts of places. Like some people, yes, they're given a really hard starting point and the ability to get through it and come over it, like despite all of their surroundings, that takes incredible inner strength. And I think that does show so much. And it also doesn't mean that somebody who didn't, doesn't also have that drive. They were just given an easier start and that's amazing. And I don't think somebody should be discounted their drive or ambition or determination because they didn't have that same start. I think it says a ton about people who did have that hard start, but I don't think it, it determines anything about somebody who didn't. So I think that's the, uh, you know, I have a junior in high school and he is a crazy determined, ambitious, hardworking, scrappy kid. And, you know, we're looking at colleges, And it is so hard for a kid to get into college. And, you know, we're looking for what is his hook? What is that hook? Right. Cause he does have that, what you're talking about. And I'm so grateful that he didn't have a hard start. I mean, he had a hard start in terms of being born really, really sick. So I guess he did, but not in terms of his environment. Um, It was his, his, his physical state was very, very sick, but so it's that interesting type of of looking at people of what's, what's inside as well as their external environment. I think they both come into play. I've got two kids and they're younger than yours. I posed this question on Twitter recently and I don't know my answer. 
the question was, if you could start your kids on any base, home plate, first base, second base, third base, home plate again, right? Um, so let's use home plate. Like they're in the batter's box and home plate, the other home plate is they've got a home run. Where do you start? Where do you think you would start your kids or how do you think about where you'd start your kids? Gosh, that's such an interesting question. I have such an internal battle with that about, you know, I think this, you know, growing an adult at home and guiding in a, you know, somebody who you want to become an incredible human in the world, an adult and responsible adult. I feel like they, to me, starting them too far along doesn't allow them the opportunity to, to fail safely. And I think that's, that's the environment I want to give my kids is where they they are going to learn on their own and they're going to fail on their own. And they're going to know that we're here to support them to get back up however they need support. So I would not start them too far. Um, but I also wish, I know this sounds ridiculous that I could just like run alongside the bases, right. Or be like, you know, Rob, my husband and I can be like just a few feet back and like, we're right here, buddy. Like, don't worry. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't know, like, how do you give them a scaffold but not um, start them too far ahead where they don't have to learn because once you're on your own, like, you know, the, the failures and consequences become so much bigger as you get older that, you know, you want, you want them to fail safe as kids. So I don't, I don't know if that's a direct answer, but maybe like starting on like first base somewhere between first and second base, but knowing that there's a scaffold around them somehow. <laughs> yeah. I think I, I ended up saying first base and there were answers that someone was like in the dugout, like not even in the batter's box yet. <laughs> I was like, okay. Uh, and it is an interesting question. I, I walked out of a uh, practice once and I was talking to another parent and the parent was complaining about the school and, you know, they, maybe they don't, you know, give their kids the advantage and it's a private school. I looked at the parent and I go, I'm pretty sure they got plenty of advantages here. Like they're, they're going to be okay. And, you know, I, I think my kids are already on, on first base for a variety of reasons. And, um, the, the question now is like, how do I, I think you're right. Like run alongside them and let them run their race. Like maybe they will take some steps back off of first base and, and go in the wrong direction. And, uh, I need to be there and challenge them in a way, right? And and not ena not enable them uh, and make sure that yeah, maybe they need to take a step back um, to learn how things are going. And uh, I think my parents did a pretty good job with me on that front and made me learn the value of money and made me learn the value of a job and uh, hard work and and things. And I think if that stuff is not instilled. Uh, being on first base can turn into a disadvantage for people. Uh, certainly being on third base can as well, but it is, it's as a parent, it's easy to say one thing. It's a lot harder to actually do it. Right. And for you, you've experienced something that I did not, where you've experienced, you didn't know if your, I think your oldest was even going to survive after birth. Um, I'm wondering how that has shaped you. I'm sure there's had to be a lot of management uh, on your end and on your husband's end to make sure you're not overprotecting someone because you knew how precious their life is. Uh, and I've had friends who have gone through hard things with their kids and it is, it's, it's really hard once you see how precious life is to really let go and let them take steps and take risks that they need to take in order to build resilience. I would imagine that was harder for you and your husband as well, given what 
your your first one through, and I think your son also, your second one also went through uh, some challenges. So can you talk about that a little bit as well? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. That's you know, he's 16 now, and um, and so the, you know, at the beginning, it was it was like paralyzing, um, feeling so scared around his his life. Even when he was home from the hospital after surgeries, it was a lot about every time he cried, is he going to be okay? Is he going to make it? Is he going to make it? And that was really, really um, the scariest thing I've ever been through by far. And, um, and it was that moment he laughs about it now that I, I remember when I got him home from the hospital and I was like, I will never yell at you. That didn't last. Um, <laughs> but it was at that moment of like, I will never take you for granted. I will never, you know, and, and granted he was a baby. He was an infant. So, um, but they so need I, to be yelled at back to the emotion. Like they need anger. They need to see anger sometimes, not, not necessarily reactive anger, but there's been times where I look at my wife and I go, Oh, we're, we're doing this right. I'll look at her. I'll be like, they need to know that that is not acceptable in our house. We're, we're tapping into this. I just want to make sure we're on the same page and then we'll go into the room. And then like, I, I look, I've talked to psychologists about this. They say anger, yelling, probably not the best parenting model, but I do think there's a time where they need to know like some things are not okay and not acceptable and your voice and your tone and your body language they pick up on it. So anyway, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. And I, and I kind of try to just like make a distinction between making sure if they feel fear or respect, like I wanted to always come from a place of respect and never fear. Um, and I think if they have a respect for your, um, your rules and your boundaries and those things that that's where the longevity comes in of it and the type of relationship that I want to build versus coming from a oh shoot, she's angry, fear state, you know? So I think mm -hmm. there's a, there's a, a nuance and a really big distinction in how it sticks um, in the feeling that I want them to have. But I think in terms of um, protectiveness, you know, Simon, our, our older son that we're talking about, he is a strong dude. He is like um, strong-willed, strong-minded. He's that when I was talking about super scrappy, super sourceful, super smart, really analytical, like way smarter than Rob or I, um, probably since he was like four. Um, but he, so I just have so much respect for him as a human and the types of decisions he makes super strong moral compass. So I haven't felt this, the same level of protectiveness because I just trust his, like, um, his decision-making the way that he looks at the world, so I, I feel like he's given us a really great um, experience of parenting that way. Of course, when he's little or when he's upset, it breaks my heart and I want to protect him. But the way he handles things, um, I admire. I think I learned a lot from him, which is a really cool, a really cool thing. You talk about gratitude a lot in the book, and there's actually something that you do with your kids around gratitude and what you do as a family. Talk about gratitude and, and how you leverage that within your family. And then let's even go beyond the family and maybe we'll bring it back to professional. And and for the rest of our time, maybe we'll we'll click back into spark brilliance and we'll click back into leadership and the business world, so to speak. Uh, but talk about gratitude with the family and then how gratitude expands beyond that with the people that you work with. So gratitude is the quickest way to change your brain and it's proven to change your brain. I think a lot of people look at gratitude as super soft and like a fluffy science, but it's, it is proven through MRI studies to completely change the structure of your brain and how our neural pathways work and kind of building a muscle in there to go into a state of positivity and optimism and possibilities. Um, and so 
it, you can't experience gratitude and fear at the same time or gratitude and stress. And what we find is I think as anybody who has kids knows that usually the most stressful times of the day are right before bed, right? Um, that it's chaos. You're trying to get things, you know, what did you do? What didn't you do? Your room's messed. Did you brush your teeth? Did you get this done? And wait, you still have this to do? Like all of these things. And as adults, we're often thinking about what did I not do today? What's still on my list? What did I, what did I mess up on? What do I have tomorrow that I'm not ready for? Right. So we're always in this, like, not always, we're often in a very anxious state, a high stress state at, at that time of night. So what we've done as a family, since Simon was, was two, even before miles was born, they're three and a half years apart every night before bed, we say, we each say three things we're grateful for. And it's from that day specifically. And what you do is you take yourself out of that stressed out space and into this place where you're reflecting back on some positive things that happened that day. And as the kids get older and they have these lives that you don't know that much about, cause they get home from school and they're like, fine, you know, everything's fine. You know, so you learn these new things that you didn't know, or you remember things that maybe you would have forgotten about. And it's this such a time of connection and it's switching out of this place of chaos into this very present grounded place of um, love and positivity. And it, we end our day with it every single day for 14 years now. And when Rob and I both travel a lot for work and when we travel, we text in our gratefuls if we can't FaceTime in. So we don't miss it. And it's just such a special, like Simon's away at a business competition right now. And last night he texted in his, his gratefuls so that we had them for our end of night routine. So it's such a positive thing for our family. And I have teams switching into the, to the work side um, I have teams that do this all the time, that whether we start a meeting with something we're grateful for to get into that prefrontal cortex, that part of our brain where we see possibilities, where we are present, where we are optimistic, we sit down and we ground ourselves in gratitude to start a meeting, something we're grateful for that day. And you learn about somebody else. There's like gratitude texts or gratitude texts that some teams do where every day they check in because there's these, uh, the science shows 21 days to change your brain. We have like the way we see the world where either like born with kind of default negative, which is kind of scanning the world for what's wrong or what's missing default neutral, which is kind of what is and default positive looking for what's good and what's right. And they say in 21 days, two minutes a day, you can bump yourself up a notch. And they do this even on, um, men that are 80 years old, set in their ways, kids that you can bump up a notch in 21 days. So just practicing three things you're grateful for every day, and getting yourself into that mindset, you start scanning for it throughout the day. You start noticing things that you might report back that you're grateful for. So you kind of shift how you're looking at the world for gratitude. Yeah. The blue angels have this phrase, glad to be here and uh, glad to be here is a mantra that they use over and over again. So one of the things that they do is they go up, they practice, they, they do all these, um, uh, they try out new things and they're flying and, and they video their practices and they come back down and they sit around a round table and they critique uh, and they watch film, but they critique themselves. And so it's brutal and it's harsh and it's tough and it's difficult and they don't hold back on their critiques of each other so that they can learn and grow. But at the end of it, they say two things they say, and I'll fix it. So they take ownership over the mistake that they made. And then they say, and I'm glad to be here. And they say glad to be here because they want to remind themselves that it's an honor to be a blue angel, A, B, 
that they have brothers and sisters that are fighting overseas and in harm's way. Um, and that they never want to forget that they're grateful to be getting the feedback. They're, they're grateful to be in the situation. So I, I said this, I told this story to a professional sports team once. And every time I walked in the locker room from that point forward, they'd always be like, Brian, glad to be here. Glad to be here. And it became funny, but to your point, like if we're focused, you, you mentioned focus earlier and that that was sort of how you started to shift uh, your attention from the fear to uh, a different lens. And you're talking about focus now. If we start focusing on optimism, then we can see the world differently. Like the simplest definition of focus is directed attention. So where are we directing our attention? And while it was funny, and maybe sometimes it's corny to say what we're grateful for, um, it also allows us, it lights up the brain. Just like when we went to the heavy stuff in you, you couldn't stop the emotions coming up. Um, like visualization is a great example. You start visualizing things and you can't control your body's reaction to what you're imagining. And so uh, there's so many ways to tap into gratitude. Last night, because I knew you were coming on the podcast, our kids, we got home late with them last night. And <laughs> I knew I was doing this interview. My poor daughter, I'm sorry. Uh, I, she was getting in bed and she doesn't really like me coming in the room anyway. It's, it's a whole thing. It's a whole different podcast. Uh, <laughs> but I said to her, I go, what are you grateful for? She goes, get out. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I was like, all right, well, I tried. And to your point, we haven't hit the 21 days of, of, building and we haven't done the necessary work to build the habit, but there are so many ways to instill gratitude into our, our people, uh, from a leadership standpoint, you know, how do we start meetings? Are we grateful to be here? Or are we not? Are we on our phone the whole time? How are we ending them? And glad to be here is just a mantra and a phrase that I like. You've got me thinking though about children and adults. And one of the themes in your book is also around fun and play. And you talk about how children laugh just infinitely more than adults. I've become really curious about curiosity and wondering about curiosity. And I've never met a kid that's not curious. It is inside of us. And yet, whether it's our school system or our society, there's something that happens that as adults, we think we're supposed to have the answer rather than remaining curious. I'm wondering to get your perspective on uh, what we can do to embrace curiosity, what we can do to get our adults and our leaders to tap into curiosity and even play uh, more often. Like, What can we do to create some of that behavioral change amongst our, our adults? No, it's such a good question. I talk about curiosity all the time. It's one of the first things and common threads through everything that I teach. And in this leadership development program I have, it's so much about like, we have to get curious, right? We default to our own lens, our own way of doing things. And, you know, people want to feel valued. They want to be seen. They want to be heard. They want to belong. And they want to truly like inauthentically connect and people are leaving their jobs if they don't have that. And they're stating it. Every study is showing this like crazy numbers around that, you know, they want this more than money. And so if you're not curious, you can't create those authentic connections. You can't have the same level of effective communication. People can't feel valued and seen and heard. If you're not curious about what does that look like for them? What does that feel like? Why, why is that idea the one coming up for them right now? How do they want feedback? You know, how do they feel valued? And I think as a leader, the number one skill we need to tap into is curiosity. And and I know, you know, the book really well now, but I, you know, one of the, the first things I talk about is flipping from gold to platinum and the golden rule treat others as we wish to be treated. 
it doesn't work in, in real interpersonal dynamics. It's great for large societies, more like a guideline for what not to do. But in real relationships, we flipped the platinum rule, which is treat others as they wish to be treated. And that's how I believe you really have those meaningful and effective relationships. And that's how you find out. You ask, how do you want to be supported right now? How can I best help you in this situation? And that's how you find these things out. How do you prefer feedback? Was that, was that good? Or could I have done that differently for you? Getting, what does fun look like to you? What do you enjoy most about your job? What was the most exciting part of this project for you? What was the most frustrating part of this project for you? Like, that's how you move people into these places where they're thriving, where they feel valued, where they feel that authentic connection, where they're doing the work that energizes them, that, that spark, right? Where your, your um, passion and talent meet, right? That's how you find these things out by that curiosity. So tapping back back into that part of you is is expansive and it's hard for some people at first but it's often relieving where it's like i don't have to know the answers i could just ask wow i could just ask you know i think we both learned the platinum rule around the same time because i think you learned it in grad school i learned it when i was selling ice cream it was like my second job out of college i was 24 years old and i treated this chef really poorly and uh, by the time I got back to the warehouse, which is where our office was, they had called and basically said that I treated the chef poorly. The chef was a jerk, by the way, but it didn't matter because when I got in there, my boss pulled me aside and said, Brian, you don't need to treat him how you would want to be treated. You have to find out how he wants to be treated. And your job is to treat him how he wants to be treated. Uh, and he gave me that gift. And to this day, it is, it's one of the best gifts I've ever received. And uh, you highlighted really, really well in the book values though you're talking about values and this came up as i was reading your book and i don't know why i hadn't made this connection until i read your book but this idea that feeling valued you talked about you know, feeling seen or or feeling like you're being heard somewhere along the line feeling valued has to do with a person's values i don't know why i never made that connection until i was going through your book because if I feel seen, it's because you understand that I value autonomy or I value being part of a team or I value space when I have uh, anger or I value um, the ability to uh, get promoted or I value fun or I value security. Like humans have different values. And when I feel most valued, it's someone else recognizing what I value. And there's a lot of value in that. <laughs> <laughs> have you, have you connected that or like, I don't, it seems so simple, but for some reason, my archaic brain had not figured that out and really understanding, all right, what does this person value? If they value fun, how can I give them fun? If they value security, how can I provide them security and understanding that different people are going to value different things? Am I, is that too simplistic? Not at all. I think that's like one of those like epiphanets, right? It's like those, those light bulbs that go off where you make these connections where it's like, that makes sense, right? It's not just some arbitrary thing where someone's like, well, this is, I guess what I want. Like there's really some depth to it. There's a reason behind it. There's a why. And I think understanding that makes us want to do it so much more. It makes it like, there's the reason why people want to feel valued in different ways. And if you value somebody the wrong way, it can totally backfire. Right. And these big Forbes studies came out that said 66% of people overall 
And 76% of millennials say they'll leave their job if they don't feel valued by their manager. And so that's how important it is for people to feel valued. But if somebody wants to feel valued by saying like, ask me how my weekend went with my mom, you knew I was visiting her. And how did you not ask me? Somebody else might say, I want space. If you give me autonomy, that means you trust me to get the job done. And if the person who wants space, you're constantly checking in with and asking these questions, they're like, wow, you don't value me. The other person's like, wow, you're leaving me alone. You don't care about me. You don't value me. And so it could backfire. And nowadays people will leave. So how do you value people the way they want to be valued and what's valuable to them, right? Is super foundational to being a leader now. You have a background on assessments. That's not what we're talking about. (laughs) Um, But I'm curious, like, how much do you leverage assessments to try to find out what a person values? And to me, it's where you can start as a leader. Like, let me understand, how do you want to be talked to? How do you want me to hold you accountable? How do you want me to challenge you? All that good stuff. Um, yeah. How, how do you, how do you help your leaders figure that out? So I, I love assessments. I think they all are illuminating and there are tons of great ones out there. And there's a huge value in sitting down and having a conversation. And we're using the word value. We should have a drinking game around the word value right now. But we've we've said it a lot. I led the way though. I would be I'd be drinking a lot. So next time we'll 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 set it up differently. So I think that there's a um there's it's really important to have those conversations because that's where you can get really tactical versus getting results from assessments, which I think assessments are awesome and they provide a ton of value. But I think that there's this idea of getting really um, specific in situations around like asking someone, how do you prefer feedback? How often, what's the cadence? Usually you don't get that type of thing out of an assessment. And, you know, um, how, how frequently do you like to meet? Do you, you know, do you want me to tell you something directly and right when it happens? Do you like to, you know, have certain check-ins and then also being able to, after you give feedbacks, asking that follow-up question, was this how you wanted it? Did this feel good? Was a different way I could have done that better for you? And some people might want to wait and get back to you and think about it. Some people are right on the spot. Like, thank you for asking because this didn't go well. And this is why, or, or this was great. This was perfect. I like it like this, but I think there's a lot that comes from those meaningful conversations that are very relevant to the type of work that you do as, as a team. And so I think that there's both, I think both are important. Yeah. There's almost, I'd almost want to create like an assessment that gets into that. Hey, you have someone close to you pass away. How do you want us to handle that? Um, Would you prefer to get promoted with a title or with, a bonus uh, and it doesn't have to be, or, but you get a sense of, do they want recognition or do they just want the money? And in those conversations, to your point, they often don't happen. And I wonder if there's a forcing function that can, that can ratchet that up. Uh, you also have me thinking about another part of your book, which is around this idea of that we trust strangers more than our boss. And that most people leave because of a bad boss. Like that's why people often leave uh workforce. I find this to be the case in my world. I can get strangers to tell me the craziest things in like minutes. Um, whereas maybe with people that are close to me, um, they don't open up as much, or maybe I don't open as much with them, but with a stranger, I will. Uh, and clients are always amazed in our first meeting, they will open up like crazy to me. And then uh, I'll talk to their 
boss and their boss doesn't know anything about that person. What do you think is going on there that we are more willing to share information with a stranger than, than a boss? I think there's the underlying power dynamic that could be there. Is it, you know, what's the thing that's going to stand out that maybe creates some friction or a question mark or something? If I shared that, what will they think? And you hear a lot of people, it's like, oh, I said this and I shared this story or I shared this fear or I shared this failure. And then they're spinning on it. Like, was that too much to say? Did that go over well? What are they going to be thinking about now? What do they think of me? So I think there's that piece in it that's inherent in a power dynamic. I also think that the the idea of psychological safety and trust has become really risen to the surface as something that it's okay to talk about is really important. So I think it's a new focus and it's a new aspect of teams that we're really shifting to allow and to, and to say like, this is necessary for people to innovate, for them to have courage, for them to take that risk, for them to not try to cover something up because they're fearful of what this mistake is going to say about them. And instead shoot, I need to share this with you as soon as possible because this is a learning opportunity and I need some support in how to fix it, right? So that's what we want to shift to is this environment where people don't worry about shame or judgment, but instead say, I'm, I'm okay to be me. I'm safe to be me. I have a place on this team because I'm respected as part of this team. And now I can say, I don't know. I messed up. I don't agree with you. I have a different idea, right? So a place where you can do that now is showing to be the number one factor of a high-performing team is psychological safety. So I think for leaders now, it's standing out is how do we create an environment where people feel safe to truly be themselves, to take those risks, to say those things that might be against popular opinion without fear of shame or judgment. And that's something I work with leaders on all the time because that's, it's critical. So one of the things I often do on this podcast is I mentioned, we'll get to something later and then I get down a rabbit hole with someone and, and we never get to it. So I want to make sure we circle back to positive psychology. And if you had asked me eight years ago, what my philosophy is for the work that I do, I would say I blend three things. I blend cognitive behavioral theory, I blend mindfulness, and I blend positive psychology. And the positive psychology piece for me was what we said earlier, you don't have to wait till it rains to build a roof. I like working with healthy people and making them better. Uh, psychology, the history of psychology was all about getting rid of suffering. Like I'm not all that interested in working with people who are suffering. Thank God there are people that are, uh, cause we need those people, but that just wasn't going to be my bag. But I must say, uh, the more that I do this work, the science around happiness is starting to not resonate with me more and more because of a lot of what our conversation has been up until now, where for me, where I used to focus on happiness, now I'm focused more on feeling alive mm -hmm. and understanding that sadness and anger and all these emotions are part of my human experience. And the more that I'm open to them, the more actually happy I often am. And I, instead of focusing on like what makes me happy, I'm going toward things that sometimes make me sad. Like I'm putting myself in intense environments uh, whether it's learning about slavery or the Holocaust or depression, uh, like I find those experiences help me have a more range when it comes to feeling alive. And so, first of all, I do love your scale to explain what positive psychology is. So I want to give you some space to explain that scale because that makes a ton of sense to me. 
and I don't like to stack questions normally. So uh, we, if, if we don't get to this, I'll, I'll remember, I'll remind us to go back to it. But the second piece of this is wondering about your perspective on the science of happiness and a lot of what has come out of University of Pennsylvania and your perspective on it. Um, so let's start with the scale to set the to set the stage, let's say, for positive psychology. And then maybe we'll have a conversation around the science of happiness as well. Okay, great. So the way that I look at positive psychology is if you picture a number line. Right, with negative numbers to the left, positive numbers to the right, and zero in the middle. And zero represents our, our neutral, our normal, right, our baseline. Traditional psychology is the study of the dips into the negative numbers and how to get back to zero, how to fix what's broken, how to heal what's wrong. And that's so critical. Like you said, it's so needed um, and it's so important. Yet what we've neglected to focus on is this whole other side of the number line, right? Where I believe like our brilliance lives, that's where our potential is. And so the goal isn't to get back to normal because the absence of sadness is not happiness. The absence of sickness is not health. The absence of burnout is not thriving, right? Normal is a baseline where all of the good stuff starts. So it's not to say we're not going to go to the negative side. It's about this whole like expansive, limitless other side that we don't traditionally focus on or think about. And that's where I think positive psychology lives is moving into that positive side of the number line. And then the science of happiness. And it seems as though like there is this, I don't want to say obsession, maybe that's too strong of a word, but look, I respect Sean Arker's work who, um, you know, gave you a blurb for your book. And I think his work's fantastic. As I do more and more work, I'm wondering about, you know, are there consequences that come from people? I don't want to say are hacking their life, but are trying to create a life that is just in alignment with happiness. Now to defend it a little bit, and this is where my brain goes, a lot of the study is around fulfillment and is around, you know, purpose and your mission. And it, it, there's a distinction sort of between happiness and pleasure that they're, that they're making. But I'm wondering if there are negative consequences to the science of happiness in, to my opinion, the same way that there are probably negative consequences to telling our kids to be gritty or to have a growth mindset uh, or to have great body language or a lot of these singular focuses on, on something, I think uh, they just lack range. They lack depth. So I wonder if the science of happiness has any negative um, challenges that they have to wrestle with as well. So I think of the science of happiness as a very simplistic term that almost diminishes the power of positive psychology because it's putting a, a label that's easy to understand, right? So to somebody who is a lay person who doesn't know much about it and they hear that, it's like, yeah, it's the science of happiness. Okay, that's a simplified way of saying it versus the science, right? Of what makes individuals and communities thrive and flourish, right? So it's really looking at like what's going right. How do we build what's strong instead of just fix what's wrong? And so I think they're very complementary to each other. I think we need both. It's this whole comprehensive spectrum of the, the, the hard and, and the easy and the positive and the lightness and the levity, which, you know, we're all drawn to is that fulfillment side. And I think the fulfillment side is wrapped up in that, that whole part that, you know, happiness is the easy word to use, but happiness is fleeting. Happiness is a moment, right? It's a, it's a, it's a momentary feeling. It's not like the science of 
anger, you know? So I think it's a simplified way for people to get kind of the gist, but I don't believe that's what it is, you know, and just, you know, talking about Sean Acor, you know, he's, he's one of my, my like mentors and I, and I love his work because he talks a lot about post-traumatic growth, you know, and, and how after trauma, he doesn't say there is no trauma because we want to get to this great, happy place. It's about sitting in trauma. He talks openly about being suicidal and his depression and working through it and growing from it. And how do you take something bad and actually fall up instead of fall down? And so it doesn't mean you don't fall. It means what do you do with it afterwards? So I think that's the key piece is, you know, a lot of people I talk about, like, this isn't about toxic positivity. It's not about emotional avoidance. It's not about irrational optimism. It's, it's practical optimism. It's look at reality. It's really look at the thing and then think about what are we going to do with this? What are some possibilities? What are some, you know, outcomes or solutions and the belief that together, you know, we can figure it out. Um, not about avoidance. We don't have the luxury of avoidance. We figured that out. Right. So it's, so I think it's so much richer than the description. I think that's so well said. And I said the branding of positive psychology in the beginning is, it's a shame as a lot of branding uh, in our politics, there's all kinds of branding that I wish was done differently, but yeah, the psychology of flourishing is an interesting take on it. And then the science of fulfillment instead of happiness, perhaps that would that would tell the story a little bit better. So um, maybe we'll get you into, into branding as well. All right. I want to end with something a little lighter because we've gone dark, you know, we've gone to heavy places. I think we've done justice to your book. I recommend people check it out. Um, but there's something that I think it was in the book or it might've been on your website, but captain of the breakdancing club in fourth grade, which um, we talked about some of the hard parts of your childhood, but I will tell you this. I wish a regret of mine is that I did not learn how to break dance as a kid. And I've thought about taking classes as an adult breakdancing. But what I've realized as an adult is that when I try to do new things, my capacity to do them, especially when they involve my body are very, very limited. And I have a long history of trying these things and it, it maybe I don't have the grit to stay with it, but the breakdancing days I think are done. And anyone who has seen me at a wedding will know that I've got some potential inside of me, especially when I have a couple of drinks in me that I can rip up a dance floor with the best of them, but I do not know how to break dance. And I wish I could get on that dance floor and spin on my head. And, you know, like I'm, breakdancing and uh, beatboxing. Like those are the two. I, I know I'm, this is exactly what you thought we were going to talk about, but beatboxing and breakdancing. When I watch those people that are elite at those two things, I do magic. Magic's probably in here too. I am in awe. Like I am in some kind of other universe when I see someone breakdance at a high, high level or beatbox or do magic. And those things I just did not do as a kid. Breakdancing. Give me fourth grade version uh of of jackie and paint the picture for us of what first of all a captain so this is a leadership position of the breakdancing club in fourth grade look like but what were you capable of like what were you doing like let us see it and is it still something that you find useful um when you get to anywhere where there's music playing 
Well, I wish so badly that this was video because if people saw the moves that I was doing right now, they would be like, she's really elite, right? Um, so you should just tell them what you've just seen. Um, so I would- wasn't much. There was not much. <laughs> we we can we can wait though. If you wanna if you wanna pull some out, we can record it and we can we can disseminate it, put it on YouTube and, and get time. you. It's never yeah. Uh, so you just missed it. Um, so I would have never called myself elite. I was a kid who loved all of that stuff. And so in fourth grade, um, we had a breakdance club. It was in our elementary school and I was, I was, I loved dance and I loved cheer and I took on break dancing and I just thought that stuff was so much fun. And I actually carried a cardboard to school with me every day just in case somebody challenged me to my two signature moves, which was a backspin or the helicopter. Those were my two things. And just in case I had this cardboard, like as I'm walking to school, like, is anybody going to challenge me? Is anybody challenged me? I practiced a lot last night. So it was this super, super goofy, quirky thing that I loved as a little kid. Um, so those were my two, those were my two moves. We used to like do these little competitions and that was my, uh, my thing. By the time I got to high school, no, I wasn't, um, that wasn't my thing anymore, but I, uh, but I, I definitely loved it as a kid. So you got in like cheerleading and other things uh, where you incorporated dance, but breakdancing was not part of the Jackie Insinger show. Breakdancing was not part of it. It was cool because University of Miami had this awesome hip hop dance club and they would come and teach our high school cheerleading squad their hip hop dance moves. And so that was what our cheerleaders actually were is we would learn all these awesome hip hop dances. And that's what we would do at our pep rallies instead. I thought that this has been a great conversation. That was pretty disappointing. Like I was expecting to hear that she still break dances. Her kids, do your kids break dance? Is break dancing a part of your life in any way, shape or form? This is a great opportunity for me to make some stuff up to end this. Yeah, make it up. This is a great way. Yeah. We, we love embellishment and lying and exaggerating. Yeah. That's what makes great, great podcast yeah. content. Yeah. So yes, we have, um, we are a break dance um, crew our family. Um, if you haven't looked us up, you should search for us. We are on tour this summer. Everybody just look us up. Um, we're going to change our name to a new brand name. So I'm not going to tell you what to look up. To. It's the Jabberwockies, right? Aren't they the big, uh, that's, that's her family. And so we saw it. It's interesting. I've done improv with my clients where I make them make stuff up. You would have passed that with flying colors. So we're going to bring it back. And, and then the last thing is, um, a joke. So, I think I read or I heard you put a joke in your pocket if you're about to do something stressful. Um, do you still do that? Is that something you still rely on? I thought that was a really cool concept or idea. Um, can you can you talk about the joke? Uh, is there a specific joke? Is it multiple jokes? How do you think about leveraging I, jokes? I'm not good at jokes. I don't I don't have a memory for jokes. I just remember like little old dumb knock knock jokes from when I was a kid. It's like a really weird place in my brain that doesn't store information. Um, but yes, I still always like look up a joke or have somebody have somebody in their family, look up a joke, put it in their pocket. What happens when you laugh and that goes into that whole play humor side of things, your cortisol drops and you then that's your stress hormone, right? So then you have access to the part of your brain that stores all the information. And so when, before public speaking or before something you're nervous about just having somebody read a joke or put, put a joke in your backpack, if you're a kid or in your pocket, if you're you know about to go on stage and read this joke automatically your cortisol lowers, you have access to that part of your brain, and then you can actually perform in a better way immediately. So that's always a really good little brain hack. It's interesting. We had on Kelly McGonigal, who's got one of the best Ted talks ever. And she talked about 
actually the person before her um, bombed and, and quote unquote choked uh, before she went out there. And Kelly was like very stressed and very nervous. And she was like, oh, well, I guess there's nothing to really lose now. And she said she completely relaxed and didn't have to perform and was able to just be present. So not quite a joke, but it is interesting how our environment can shape how we show up. I'll give you my joke that you can steal and you can use. And it was actually from a friend of mine, Rich, who passed away. So shout out to, to anyone who knows Rich that's listening to this. And his joke that he would always use in college was, do you want to hear two short jokes and a long joke? And then he'd respond, joke, joke, joke. And that <laughs> was his joke. And I don't know. It always got me. It always made me laugh. I and I, yeah, yeah you, you can remember that one. It's an easy one to remember. Um, but Jackie, this has been a bunch of fun. It's uh, brought out a range of emotions in me. And and I love how you bring in the science and the research, the statistics. So you might not have a memory for uh, jokes, but you definitely remember the science, which is really impressive. If people want to learn more about you and your business, where's the best place they can do that? And also on social media, where can people follow along as, as you continue to make an impact? Well, thanks. Yeah. So um, I'm on LinkedIn is the social media I'm most on. It's just Jackie Insinger. And um, Instagram, I'm on there too. I'm not great about it. I'm working on it. My website is just sparkbrilliance.com and anybody can email me. I love when people reach out. It's just Jackie at sparkbrilliance.com. And I'd love to hear from anybody. This has been so much fun, Brian. I've loved this. Awesome. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and then LinkedIn as well at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all of these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Jackie, I agree. This has been a blast. Uh, hopefully next time you're in the DC area, we'll get to meet in person or if I'm out your way as well. Uh, thanks for coming on and appreciate you really sparking something like that, sparking something in, in all of us to, to be brilliant. I had a grad school teacher who was always about brilliance. She would say, be brilliant, like go towards brilliance. And I think your ability to put spark with brilliance and combine those words is inspiring. So I appreciate you and uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I hope you found it valuable. Did you like that? Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. If you value somebody the wrong way, it can totally backfire, right? And these big Forbes studies came out that said 66% of people overall and 76% of millennials say they'll leave their job if they don't feel valued by their manager. And so that's how important it is for people to feel valued. But if somebody wants to feel valued by saying like, ask me how my weekend went with my mom, you knew I was visiting her and how did you not ask me? Somebody else might say, I want space. If you give me autonomy, that means you trust me to get the job done. And if the person who wants space, you're constantly checking in with and asking these questions, they're like, wow, you don't value me. The other person's like, wow, you're leaving me alone. You don't care about me. You don't value me. And so it could backfire. And nowadays people will leave. So how do you value people the way they want to be valued and what's valuable to them right, is super foundational to being a leader now.